This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Australia's Deputy Prime Minister flags the possibility of keeping police and troops in the Solomon Islands beyond the Pacific Games. The security within the Pacific should emanate from the Pacific family uh, first. Um, and, and that's essentially the message that, that we'll be giving. Also, the last refugee held by Australia is flown off Nauru, but that won't be the end of the facility, which will be maintained in the event of new arrivals. There is a commitment to um, offshore processing being a key part of uh, sovereign borders. And we learn about new AI technology, which season, seasonal workers have been at the forefront of in the agriculture industry. They moved me to a robot team, which is really surprised me because I have no idea how to work with the robot. We'll learn all about that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, Samoans are being urged to use their family and village phonos or meetings to talk about what are often considered taboo topics, mental health and suicide. As Fruan reports from Samoa, at least 16 people have already taken their lives in the country so far this year. And a warning, this story explores suicide and might cause distress for some listeners. It's an issue Samoan police are regularly confronted with. Suicide is a very significant matter because, you know, you're never going to get a life back. That's Papa Li'i Monalisaketi, Samoa's Deputy Police Commissioner. She says official police figures show that Samoa's suicide cases rose dramatically from 17 in 2021 to 27 last year. It's a very concerning number. Deputy Police Commissioner Babali believes there are multiple factors behind the increase, including a COVID-19 lockdown in early 2022 when Samoa recorded its first case within the community. I think because during COVID um, there was... People were locked down, seeing each other 24-7. It's not what our communities are used to. Uh, there are always things back to normal. You wake up in the morning, say goodbye to your families, and then go to work, go to school. That didn't happen uh, during COVID. Everybody was like expected to be at home, seeing each other. It can be very daunting on, on everybody, trying to juggle the, the different personalities of families. But I think because also in Samoa, we're such a, a communal society where you, you live with your parents, aunties, uncles, cousins. Uh, it can get very difficult at times. So I think that's, that's why there was an increase. It continues to spike because I think um, a lot more is what's happening to, to our country. Things were getting expensive. People were trying to find jobs because a lot of our people especially those ones that were working in the tourism industry, um, lost their jobs during COVID. And then, you know, um, having to try to survive and make commitments to church, to village, and a lot of the things. So probably all these factors has impacted the way uh, people were trying to cope. She says last year's spike in cases triggered police to want to do more to help. We started our Facebook podcast, which is called the Samoa Songale Mu. Hey, 
And our first two episodes were primarily, um, you know, focused on suicide because of the numbers that we were seeing. But Samoa's suicide rates were high before the COVID-19 pandemic too. The non-governmental organization Fatawaleola or Samo Lifeline was founded in 2002 to try and lower the alarming suicide rates. Its director, Babali Caroline Paula Chong, says suicide cases recorded in the late 1990s were around 50 to 60 per year. And despite the issue being a big problem, it is not highlighted enough. Suicide has been in Samoa for decades. Suicide is never the result of a single factor or event. She says factors such as mental illness, unaddressed depression, violence and financial pressure often play a major role. A story that stayed with Fatawa Leola's director is that of a young woman who committed suicide after she was caught stealing from her employer to meet family financial obligations. Before she passed away, she shared why she did this. She was ashamed of what she'd done. She was full of fear of the beatings that would come as a result of what had happened. So she would rather take her life than to face any of this. She didn't want to bring shame upon her family. Police report the majority of those taking their life are young teenagers through to people in their early 30s. And Bapali Caroline Paula Chong from Fatawa Leola says Samoan men are more likely to commit suicide than women. A man, rather than seeking help, they resort to suicide or attempted suicide. The men bottle themselves up to a point where they blow, whereas the female thinks more and she reaches for help or calls us for help or whoever to seek help before they actually contemplate or or take their own lives. And Deputy Police Commissioner Bapali wants to see more of that community support. She believes society holds the key in addressing Samo's high suicide rates. I think the solution is the community coming together and discussing. You know, our culture was so exposed to the Avafatifata and discussing matters. We do it in our village phonos, and I don't know why we can't do it in the dynamic of families, especially when things are not going well. I think as a community, we need to be more vocal in discussing this and bringing it out in the open because... A lot of the times the families that are affected don't want to, to, to talk about it. But, you know, if they can share the experience, utilize the experience as part of an awareness, maybe that's one way of saving someone else's life. Fata Waleola's director, Babali, agrees that the whole community needs to play a role. Unfortunately, it still is a subject that is not readily discussed talked about or accepted. And a collaborative effort is needed to help lessen it and hopefully to eradicate it at some point, which is probably impossible. But a collaborative effort by the whole community, and I mean from the government all the way down to the village hierarchy, which is the Matais, the Pulenu'us, the and with the civil society like ourselves, who are the hands and feet, really, of trying to help our people. 
That was Fatatawa Leola's Caroline Paul Achong ending that report from Adele Fruin in Samoa. And if that story raised issues for you or someone you know and you need support in Samoa, the Fatatawa Leola lifeline is 800-5433. In Tonga, there's lifeline on 2300 or 25144. In Fiji, lifeline can be reached on 667 667- 0565 or the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre on double three one double three double zero In Papua New Guinea, there's Lifeline Port Moresby on 326-0011 and the One Top Counseling Helpline on 7150-8000. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles says his government is open to keeping police and troops in Solomon Islands longer than planned if that's what the local government wants. Mr Miles is flying to Honiara today on his first trip to the country as Deputy Prime Minister and he'll meet with Prime Minister Menace Sogavare this evening. He'll also visit Australian Federal Police and soldiers who are in Honiara as part of the regional Solomon Islands Assistant Force who are due to leave the country after the city hosts the Pacific Games last Later this year, Mr. Miles told Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Zhejic the timeline could be changed if requested. Well, my message to uh, Solomon Islands government will be uh, the importance that Australia places on the relationship uh, and our desire to be close partners with Solomon Islands, um, and uh, the fact that what we see is that. Um, the security within the Pacific should emanate from the Pacific family uh, first. Um, and, and that's essentially the message that, that we'll be giving and it's the message that we take wherever we go um, within the Pacific. And I think with sincerity, um, we, we, we simply seek to let Solomons know how important they are to us and, and um, our intent to be the best partner that we can be with them. Now, on the development front, Australia's been pouring some money or quite a substantial amount of money into a couple of very high-profile initiatives and projects in Solomon Islands. Uh, What's your assessment of the the way the development relationship is tracking? And uh, what, uh, when you say you'll discuss development issues with Mr Sokovari and others, what focus shifts might we see? Could there be more money ploughed into climate change resilience, for example? Well, certainly climate change is front and centre in terms of uh, the issues which are faced by the countries of the Pacific, including Solomon Islands. And indeed, I I think understandably, the Pacific and Solomon Islands would see the biggest security issue that they face um, as coming from climate change. And so we will continue to to work with them um, on projects uh, around climate change. And we'll continue to focus on the way in which Australia can contribute to uh, Solomon Islands development. I mean, ultimately, development across the Pacific is a challenge. uh, And and that has something to do with Australia. And and our, our focus Uh, needs to be upon improving the development outcomes of all countries around the Pacific. Um, And and that's what we seek to do. And I'll be looking forward to having conversations with uh, Prime Minister Sogavari about ways in which we can best pursue that. Just finally, uh, you mentioned the meetings you'll have with the SIAF personnel and discussions on that front. Uh, As SIAF personnel, is it your understanding they will continue to stay in Solomon Islands through to the Pacific Games when those are held? And is there any possibility of that being extended or is that not yet under contemplation? 
Well, I think we will see them through to the um, South Pacific Games. And obviously we are um, very uh, focused on the role that they are playing within Solomon Islands. And we'll talk with the government about uh, their ongoing utility and, and, and ways in which they can continue to provide support. The last government basically said it was going to be a short deployment. It's now uh, 15 months, and your suggestion there is that it could go longer. Was it unrealistic for the former government to, to make that commitment when it was always likely to be a, uh, a longer-term effort? Well, I, I suppose uh, the, the, the point I'd make is that um, our engagement, we see that our engagement in the Pacific is 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 measured over the long term, um, and being a uh, the best partner that we can be for Solomon Islands is making sure that we are there over the journey, um, and it's really that philosophy which is going to underpin um, this deployment, but also the other ways in which we engage with Solomon Islands and its government. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles speaking to Stephen Zedic ahead of his departure for Honiara. And staying on the Australian government, neither of Australia's major political parties is concerned at the high price that will be paid to keep open the government's detention centre on Nauru, even though all refugees have been moved off the island. The last refugee held by Australia on Nauru was flown to Brisbane over the weekend, bringing an end to a decade of so-called offshore processing of people who'd attempted to reach Australia by boat. The facilities on Nauru will, however, be maintained in a state of readiness to receive new arrivals at a cost of around $420 million over the next four years. The ABC's Canberra Bureau Chief Greg Jennett asked both Labor MP Lisa Chesters and Liberal MP Bridget Archer whether it's worth the hefty price tag. Here's Miss Archer speaking first. Well, I think it's very pleasing um, to see people transferred from Nauru uh, and, you know, I, I think that uh, there's broad agreement that we we don't really want to see people held in offshore detention. But as the Minister has said, and again, I think this is one of those areas of bipartisanship, that there is a commitment to um, offshore processing being a key part of uh, sovereign borders. I mean, ideally, you don't want to see it utilised, but at the same time, I think the the flip side of that is it obviously comes at a cost to maintain it um, in the event that it, it does need to be used or that it's used, I guess, as as a deterrent, ideally. But it is uh, a vexed question, I guess, that it is such a high price tag uh, to continue to have that. But I'm not sure what the alternative is to continue to remain as a as a key plank of that of that sovereign borders. Well, you're right. Um, both parties say it does remain a central plank, but at what price? At any price, Lisa Chester, to be the deterrent that Bridget says it is, and which I think your government would acknowledge that it is, it's a pretty expensive deterrent. Look, it's part of regional processing. The Labor Party had this debate at our conference quite a few years ago and settled that we need to have regional processing. Just seeing what's happening in Europe is a reminder. Like, we don't want people getting onto leaky boats, risking their lives, as we've seen quite tragically in in Europe just in the past few weeks. Uh, The price tag, that's up to governments of the day to negotiate. Um, There's some contracts in place. you know, as the minister said, we don't comment on the day-to-day of operational sovereign borders, but the principle is there that we, we have regional processing as a deterrent to move people through quickly. That's what we've seen from, from our government since coming in. It's now resolved. 
uh, what we need to do is those other matters about the price tag will be worked out, um, you know, from government to government. Yeah, and from an ALP policy point of view, the first line of defence for this government, the previous government, Lisa, is boat turnbacks, of course, to ensure that people smugglers didn't make it in the first place and then end up in an area like Nauru. Uh, is there any meaningful push within the ALP to revisit that, particularly at national conference coming up? Well, from what I've seen and what I've heard is um, where it's safe to do so, the partnership that's happening between Indonesian and Australian, um, Australian governments at the border front is working. We don't want people making that journey in leaky boats, putting lives at risk. Uh, we've seen what happens when that occurs. Uh, so the relationship that has been established between Indonesia and other countries in our region and the Australian government is working. And we want to make sure that that continues uh, we support people making asylum. It is their right to do so, but it needs to be done in a safe and fair way uh, and in a way that doesn't see people put their lives at risk. Um, people sp smugglers are, are brutal. They are ruthless. We, we see that happening on a weekly, monthly basis in Europe. We don't want to see that reopen here in Australia. Labor MP Lisa Chester's there speaking with the ABC's uh, Canberra Bureau Chief Greg Jennett, and you also heard from Liberal MP Bridget Archer. It's Wednesday, June 28, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Hope you're comfortable wherever you are because we have plenty more to come on today's show. We'll learn about new AI technology, which seasonal workers have been at the forefront of in the agriculture industry. We'll also learn how other Pacific Island countries can go about reclaiming remains of their ancestors after New Zealand repatriated about 100 Māori and Moriori remains after more than a century in Germany. It's that time of the morning where we find out what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Nick Fogarty. Nick, how are you today? Good, Kyle. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Now, first up, there's been a holdup in uh, compact review negotiations between the Marshall Islands and Washington due to the US nuclear legacy in the region. Yeah, so the Compact of Free Association between the US and the Marshalls is up for review with a new financial package due on September 30. But the Island Times is reporting that a lack of agreement on the US nuclear legacy is holding up the negotiations. So Marshall Islands Parliamentary Speaker Kenneth Keady says some of the matters at issue include the, quote, refusal of the US government to pay US $3.2 billion in compensation for the damages from 67 nuclear bombs that were detonated in Marshall Islands. Uh, he says the $150 million that the US initially paid under the original compact plus the extra yearly payments that they've paid, was simply not enough, and that experts brought in by the marshals have submitted that $3.2 billion should be paid. Um, the US has brought in its own experts, though, who dispute this figure. Uh, all of this comes after more than 100 activist groups signed a letter earlier this year calling on US President Joe Biden to apologise for those nuclear tests conducted in the marshals, saying it should be done before this Compact of Free Association is signed. Um, the Federated States of Micronesia, for their part, signed their agreements with Washington on the fiscal extension of the compact on the 23rd of May, uh, and Palau's compact review is due in 2024. 
Now let's move on to the Solomon Islands, where the Ministry of Health has moved to reassure the public uh, regarding a supposed bloody supply crisis at the National Referral Hospital. This doesn't doesn't sound too good at all. Yeah, so late last week there was a malfunction in the blood bank fridge uh, at that hospital, which resulted in the contamination of a massive supply of stored blood, so about 150 units of blood, um, and for some context, the hospital needs 15 to 20 units of blood daily to cater for blood transfusions uh, and operations. Um, the hospital's CEO, Dr. George Malafuasi, has now released a statement saying a new fridge has been installed and that there's also a blood donation drive on to replace the blood. Uh, and also that the Chinese medical team there will also donate new equipment for the blood bank with a specially made blood bank fridge. So the Solomon Times is reporting that the hospital will also be looking to install power transformers on top of their backup generators to protect their specialised equipment from those ongoing power outages that Honiara is experiencing. Yeah, let's hope they can get a bit, a bit of a reprieve out of that. We do know how important that uh, the blood is to hospitals. Uh, and lastly, a story that I've, I've been waiting with uh, with bated breath for, Nick. Uh, there have been some developments in a search for interstellar material at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Yes, I believe you interviewed Harvard physicist Avi Loeb when he set out on his expedition to find material from the IM-1 meteorite, which exploded over the Pacific Ocean at 3.05am local time on the 9th of January 2014. Um, Avi Loeb and his team have been searching around the ocean floor around 84 kilometres off Manus Island in PNG for that material. Uh, And he notes in his blog of the expedition that now on the 21st of June, they found a small spherical, spherical, sorry, like a tiny metallic pearl about 0.3 millimetres across which is made of iron, magnesium and titanium, which Loeb says is an unusual combination for both human-made objects and meteorites. Uh, They've now found many more of these spherules in the same area, so they're not 100% sure yet that the spherules come from IM-1 or even from any interstellar objects at all, but they'll be taking them back to the Harvard College Observatory where they'll use spectrometry, to identify the isotopes within. Uh, so perhaps we can have Avi Loeb back in the program and he'll explain the science a little bit better than I can. No, absolutely. And look, in case for whatever reason he doesn't come back on the show, uh, we, you can listen to his original interview on Pacific Beat, uh, which took place on, on March 28 earlier this year. He had some fascinating uh, things to say just about the universe uh, in general and about aliens. It's, uh, it's right up my alien, probably most people's alleys, <laughs> to, to be honest to be honest there, Nick. But I just do hope whatever comes out of it, I hope he is able to share it with uh, with PNG um, or, or Nauru in some way, given it was around their area that uh, that it obviously it obviously landed in. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for joining us today on Newswrap. No worries, Kyle. That was Nick Fogarty joining me there. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Well, artificial intelligence is advancing rapidly across the world and not least in the agriculture industry. And as I report, in Tasmania, seasonal workers from Timor-Leste are at the forefront of AI technology, which one day could do away with the need for human fruit pickers. When Joao dos Santos left Timor-Leste to work in Australia, he did so believing he'd be a regular fruit picker. But the job that awaited him at Burlington Berries in Tasmania was something rather different. I was part of Palm's team and I work as a normal pickers for raspberry. But after around one month, they moved me to a robot team, which is really surprised me because I have no idea how to work with the robot. Joao didn't know it at the time, but he was sent to the only farm in the Northern Hemisphere that was trialling dog bots, high-precision robots powered by AI and designed to harvest strawberries. To him, they seemed like something out of the Terminator movies. But the big difference was these weren't science fiction creations. They were real. They specialised in fruit picking, and it was Joao's job to control them. They have an advanced computer system on it, and it will identify the ripeness of the berries, and that will pick it. They will put any different planets according to its quality. The dog bots are an invention of the UK firm Dogtooth, a technology company that services the agriculture industry. They are controlled through a tablet connected to the internet and have two arms which work simultaneously to cut strawberries at the stem. I found it's really different kind of work. Before I work as a normal picker, I have to use my hand, you know, I have to push the trolley around the tunnels using my own hands. But when I'm working with the robot, it was very easy for me because I only use the tablet. I can monitor more than 10 robots in one time and... The robot is moving and pick by itself. Then what we do is just to replace the berries inside the tray when it's full. So I found it really, really fun and really easy. By the end of the season, Joao was operating 13 robots on his own. But he wasn't alone. We had three guys from from Timor-Leste, two operating and one were helping us with general plant care and quality control and general assisting. Eva Tildekvist is the Dogtooth site manager at Burlington Berries. We learned a lot. We had a few issues starting off, which is as expected. But uh, it's a journey and we're always trying to improve and getting better. So it was really useful. And, and then we managed to work through them and improve our, our numbers, our extractions rate and our speeds almost to, to double it towards the end of the season, which was really, really successful. Dogtooth designed the robots as a way to address global labour shortages, which Eva says have increased since the COVID-19 pandemic. The first time Dogtooth came out was 2017 with just the one robot, which was a Gen 3. So that was just starting off. The last deployment had five robots. And now this year, we've opted to 16 robots. So this was a full-scale picking service we offered. As the robots are not for sale just yet, but the end, the end goal is to sell them to the farms so they will be owned and operated by the farms themselves. Now for us to get the, the experience, the picking, the testing time in, we're offering it as a, as a picking service. With labour shortages likely to continue, Eva expects the agriculture industry to become increasingly reliant on robotic technology. But surprisingly, perhaps, she doesn't expect it to come at the cost of human jobs. The robots are not designed to be replacement for workforce, more than a, more like a supplement. They're productivity tools. So 
there will probably see a shift in the workforce rather than a replacement in workforce. So you could free up people doing these repetitive laborers' job to put them at to other tasks at the farm that requires more more human input and more creativity, for example. We're not trying yeah. to beat the human. We're not trying to outrun the humans because, frankly, that, that's a very big task to take on. They have other qualities that the humans sometimes struggles with. They have very high quality of picking. We can get a punnet picked and packed to retail weight with a good, good quality, according to the benchmarks that's set by the industry. And additional benefit cities do as their machines, as they travel down the field of strawberries, they collect a lot of data. All these images can be uh, analyzed and produce valuable information for the farm, such as uh, future yield, as well as give you uh, the health of your of your crop. Joao Dos Santos says his experience with dogbots could lead to new opportunities back in Timor-Leste, where he works as a printer. I think it's kind of something that really important for my experience in future. In Timor-Leste, we don't have those sorts of technology in farms. These experience that I have learned from the robots will be very useful, you know, with the moving of advanced technology. I hope one day, maybe in Timor, some company will have this kind of uh, robots or machines. I think I will be qualified to work on those yeah, it's really interesting stuff. It's uh, it's not quite Terminator just yet, but who knows? We we might not be uh, too far off. Uh, that was Timor Leste's seasonal worker Joao dos Santos ending that report from myself. Well, the issue of repatriating Pacific human remains and cultural objects from museums and university collections overseas has been in the spotlight recently. We've heard recently on Pacific Beat about 100 Māori and Moriori ancestral remains being repatriated to New Zealand after more than a century in Germany. Many of the human remains were looted or taken after violent conflicts and traded overseas during colonial times. We've also heard that many human remains from other Pacific countries are in those museums. This is what the director of Leipzig's Grassy Museum, Leontine Meje von Mensch, told us earlier. could actually reverse the question and, and ask from which indigenous group we don't have uh, human remains from. So what can other Pacific countries do should they want their ancestors back? The Bravkavola Dare asked Te, uh, Te Ariaki Rangi Mamaku Ironside, the, rep- the repatriation program coordinator at Te Papa Museum in New Zealand, to tell her more about that space. Germany has been very steadily and carefully, but also methodically, uh, working through a process of uh, recognising the colonial part reconciling the, uh, you know, the really big sensitive issues around their uh, museums collections and the universities collections and actively participating, uh, actively driving a process of reconciliation through repatriation. Many, many different levels. And so there's a very large social, cultural shift that's happened that supports uh, a lot of this work. And there's a lot of government resourcing and framework that have been adopted over the last seven years. And amongst museums themselves, with the German Museums Association, it's very much a favourable favorable environment, especially in terms of returning sensitive collection items such as ancestors from, uh, from Indigenous gain colonial context, and this is actually really quite important. So I think they serve as quite a uh, quite a world leader in these areas. And you know, like I think they, as they mature through this process, 
the conversation and discussions around objects of sacred patrimony as well as uh, sacred artifacts from uh, they were taken or looted or have, uh, you know, have, have a lot of significance, cultural significance to the communities. The, the pathways will open up for those treasures to be returned to their communities as well. So it's very, very interesting how things develop within Germany and also with the international community um, in the next five to ten years. And what sort of advice would you give if we, you know, if you think about our listeners across the Pacific who yeah. might have ancestors in yeah. those museums as well? We've been told that there are remains or ancestors from many, many different Pacific communities. If those countries or those museums in the Pacific would like to get their ancestors back, what sort of advice would you give them? My first piece of advice would be to develop a, develop a community, develop the collective that's going to drive first the uh, inquiries followed by the request and then the act of repatriation. Because the actual process is relatively straightforward, but the first thing that you actually, that communities should be doing is uh, seeking the support from their government, from, uh, from the government's officials and making those connections with, uh, with the countries. So we do a lot of work with the New Zealand Embassy. We don't necessarily need to uh, because we do have a government mandate, but it actually works out a lot better that we actually interface with our particular embassy in those countries overseas that we are negotiating with. And so uh, um, in that first instance, there definitely needs to be a formal a formal relationship between the government and the communities and something that's well documented as well, because when you do make these claims to the institution, they are very cautious to ensure that the communities that they are negotiating with or in active discussions with are the right communities. So it is somewhat discomforting to have to go through that process to actually prove yourself as a community that has a connection there. But um, once you actually to achieve that goal, then everything else that follows afterwards is, is actually quite straightforward. Um, and it's being able to actually speak with these institutions on equal on equal terms. Mm. And a lot of the German institutions are very, very open towards that. But for museums internationally, it is around ensuring that the community that they are discussing are directly connected or quite well connected to the objects or the ancestors that's being requested uh, home. But, you know, the, the second piece of advice is actually to search out all of all communities to actually search, search out and to make relationships with other Indigenous programs that are active in this space. So um, Te Papa and Karangao Te Roa are actively available to help support other Indigenous communities through providing advice. But you know, at the same time, we all, there's also the uh, in Australia, they have a very active uh, federally funded uh, repatriation program. And in North America, they have quite quite a few active repatriation programs in North America or in the, in the United States and, and Hawaii as well. So develop your collective and find your community will be my two pieces. Mm. Tia Rikarangi Mamaku Ironside talking there to Dubrovka Volodair. Well, as many of you would know, Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands was used by the US government in the 1940s and 50s for testing nuclear weapons, tests which left it totally uninhabitable. In the 1980s, the US government set up two trust funds that provided monthly payments to help Bikinians cover basic expenses. But in just six years, the $59 million fund has been virtually emptied, leading angry, leading to angry protests and claims of mismanagement. Pete McKenzie, a freelance investigative journalist, has been 
following the story for the New York Times and The Guardian and spoke to the ABC's Hamish MacDonald. He began by explaining why people were no longer living on Bikini Atoll. Originally, there were a few hundred people living on Bikini Atoll, but as they were forced off the island by the nuclear testing, they spread out across a lot of the Marshall Islands and America itself. And so now there's a population of about 6,800 Bikinians who are connected to the community in some way. And the fund was meant to support that community. Uh, It provided housing, it provided education support, and it provided, as you say, living payments for them to, uh, to support them. And so what's changed with the fund? Because it, it existed for some time and then suddenly it seems to have disappeared. I think there's only $100,000 left in it now. So we saw in 2016 the election of a new mayor to oversee the displaced Bikinian community. And that new mayor pushed really hard the incoming Trump administration to hand over control of the fund, to completely take away the auditing that the, Trump, uh, the American administration had done previously and a lot of the controls that were on the fund. And the Trump administration did. They went completely hands-off. And that led to this massive surge in spending that we've seen over the last six years that took the fund from $59 million or more to, as you say, just $100,000 towards the start of this year. And is it clear where those funds were spent? It's really hard to get visibility because the lack of audits mean that we don't really know where the spending's gone. I was able to see some of the internal bank bank documents through uh, an anonymous source. And from what we can tell, it looks like it's gone in a number of different directions. Some of the money was spent on extravagant but relatively popular purchases for the Bikinian community. So uh, a plane that could hypothetically go from island to island, a couple of small boats to deliver supplies, uh, an apartment building in the, the capital of the Marshall Islands all of which have varying levels of trouble, but which were relatively popular. And then there's more controversial purchases. We saw uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars going to a house for the mayor, uh, and we saw hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on travel for Bikinian officials to go and tra- uh, to look for those planes and ships to buy. Uh, And there's an interesting geopolitical dimension to all of this, isn't there? Because uh, of the contest in the the Pacific between the United States and China. Can you explain how that plays into, I suppose, the response or or lack of response to to what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. The Marshall Islands are in a particularly strategic part of the Pacific. They're about halfway between Australia and Hawaii. And they've been seeing this real surge of of pressure and of diplomacy from China, which is hoping to pull them away from their traditional allies, the United States, with with which they have this very long relationship. And so in talking with many of the American officials who were concerned about this arrangement, I kept on hearing that the Trump administration specifically and American officials more generally didn't want to engage in anything that would cause friction. They didn't want to get into arguments with Marshallese officials. They didn't want to have to do the audits because they feared that that would lead to diplomatic tussles. And any diplomatic tussles might just anger Marshallese officials enough to push them, Americans feared, into the hands of the Chinese government. Because the US has has signed new strategic pacts with with states in the Pacific Islands like Palau and Micronesia. Are they trying to to sign an updated pact with with the Marshall Islands as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is where things get really interesting. So America has these agreements called Compacts of Free Association with Palau, Micronesia and the Marshall Islands, which let, set out this very ambitious, very strong set of rights for America, controlling their foreign policy, their defence policy. And as you say, they've, they've managed to finalise updated agreements with both Palau and Micronesia. But the Marshall Islands is still holding out. And so we're now in this really interesting position where American officials have been presented with evidence that money that's previously given is being mismanaged and, and some critics say uh, involved in alleged fraud. And they have to consider whether or not they are going to put safeguards on any increase in money that they put into uh, a new compact of free association with the Marshall Islands. And where do most of the, the Bikinians now reside? Are they in the Marshall Islands? Or are they elsewhere? Well, it's a bit of a half and half. So about half of that 6,800 Bikinian community live in various parts of the Marshall Islands. And then the other half live in America through this interesting provision in those contacts of free associations that allows Marshallese people to live in America visa-free. So you can see that very close relationship between the two countries translating to how the Bikini community is, is spread across the world. And given what damage the, the, t- the nuclear testing did to the Bikini at all, can these people go anywhere near their, their original homeland? There's a lot of scientific tussle on that point. But what we do know is that Bikinians don't feel comfortable. Bikinians don't feel safe going back to their homelands. In multiple situations previously, America has taken Bikinians back to Bikini only to find that the levels of radioactivity on the atoll were much higher than they thought. And so the Kenyans don't trust promises that they keep on hearing from American officials that they could go back. And America isn't stumping up the money to make sure that there's a clean-up of the Kenya atoll to make sure the Kenyans feel safe. Yeah, and, and what about this additional fund that President Biden's administration is now talking about? How much is that worth? Uh, will it get approval? Uh, will there be any uh, provision to ensure that it doesn't get misspent? Yeah, so that's the $700 million uh, that President Biden has promised the Marshall Islands as part of this new and revised compact pre-association on top of a whole bunch of other funding for, for other government spending in the Marshall Islands. And that $700 million is not specifically allocated towards anything, but anonymously American officials say it's meant to be used by Marshallese officials as a, a way of uh, apologising for the nuclear harm that they've suffered. And so it'll be interesting to see as American officials and, and Marshallese officials continue to negotiate whether or not America will insist on, on new safeguards for that money to prevent it from being frittered away. Uh, not expecting you to give away any sources, but how did you come across this story? It's absolutely extraordinary. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting story, actually. The, the investigative part of it was relatively straightforward. I, I heard some rumours and I went to the mayor and I said, hey, can you provide me with a copy of the most recent bank statements for the two trust funds. And very kindly, he did. And so it was a, a matter of comparing the bank statements from six years ago, which, you know, we knew that there was roughly $59 million in the funds, more before that, and, and the bank statements from earlier this year, which showed just over $100,000 left. More recently, we've had slightly more uh, smoke and daggers uh, investigative work where I've 
been very lucky to have some anonymous sources provide me with some some of the interesting correspondence between the mayor, his lawyer, and uh, the independent trustees who oversaw the fund, which allowed me to provide a little bit more detail about where the money went. Yeah, Pete McKenzie, investigative journalist, speaking to the ABC's Hamish McDonald there. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Please stick around for the news, followed by Nisha Daily. I'm Kyle Evans. Thank you very much for joining us.